Hello everyone, this is an early release of what should have been a Saturday episode. It's a Friday job for me because I'm moving back to uni on Saturday, which will be tomorrow. But depending on when you listen to this, it might have been thousands of years ago. Ain't that swell. Um, but heading back to college leaves this podcast under its very first dark cloud of uncertainty. Um, such as, what if I can't upload on days when I want to upload? Uh, what if I can't summon the energy to put out an episode or even come up with an idea? Now, I, I know these are only 30 minutes thereabouts, these episodes, but a lot of thought goes into them, and that might be a shock <laughs> to one or two of you, but even though this is all really, really fun, from choosing the movie, receiving feedback and suggestions, coming up with an angle to the movie discuss, to discuss, you know, um, even doing the cover art. It's challenging. The whole process, it's pretty challenging, but overall, it's so, so fun. The last thing I want is to let this huge project of mine go stale um, and disappoint a very, very consistent, uh, very supportive uh, listenership. But you have to remember, I'm even more compelling to listen to in person. So when I go back to college, I'm gonna be in such high demand for conversation that I may end up neglecting a many <laughs> of you here. Um, but I promise that if a week goes by and you check your Spotify notifications and you see that one of my episodes isn't up when it should be, just know that wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm having a lot of fun. Or I've died horribly in a landslide. Either way, I'm still experiencing experiences. <laughs> Today's episode is an old suggestion. Uh, it was one of the first ones to come in that I wasn't planning on doing for another couple of weeks. Um, but I just hit podcaster's block, which is where I, you, you know, you can't come up with new ideas for an episode. So I've decided to do this movie because I couldn't get any outside inspiration. And the other suggestions were just too much for me this week. My, my brain isn't completely here today. And what better way to segue into this topic? Here is goodwill hunting and why humans have to struggle to be smart and why all that hard work doesn't always pay off. Proudly presented by a monkey. <laughs> First of all, this topic is incredibly broad. Uh, we're essentially going to be talking about what intelligence is, why it differs across individuals, you know, this idea of individual differences, uh, and also making something of an analysis of society and why it doesn't always encourage and grow intelligence. Um, the difficulty here is properly defining what intelligence is, because psychologists have been trying to pin this down for decades, not because they're stupid. <laughs> they're, a lot of them are far more brainier than I could ever hope to be. Um, wouldn't that be ironic? A room full of dummies trying to figure out what intelligence is. But for those who have no clue of what Goodwill Hunting is, it's a movie that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck put together when they were just getting started in the movie business. I'm pretty sure it won an Oscar and they even managed to get Robin Williams in. But Matt Damon plays this tragic character from Boston, a young janitor, or caretaker, depending on where you're from, who cleans the floors in Harvard University, which, from what I hear, is a pretty decent university, you know, best one in the world. 
But I mean, the world is just one planet out of trillions, so I guess we never know in the big context of things, it mightn't be that great. Now, Matt Damon, the caretaker, is cocky, he's loud, he's very violent, he's very uh, emotional, he's lazy, he has no direction, um, he's orphaned, he's been raised in institutions, um, in abusive foster homes, he's very, very impulsive, he's in and out of juvenile detention centre places, and he always just seems to make the wrong decisions, no matter what he does. And it's not until he meets his therapist, played by Robin Williams, that he learns to live his life on his own terms. Now the big thing about this movie, the guiding force of this movie, is that Matt Damon's character is a savant. A savant, or a savant, or a savant, <laughs> coined from the real-life person, Marilyn Vos Savant, or Vos Savant. I keep coming across names and of people that I can't pronounce in, in this uh, podcast, but uh, Marilyn Voss Savant was a person who, to date, I'm pretty sure um, she still has the highest ever recorded IQ of 228, way over double the average human population. Um, and a savant is someone who shows unparalleled skill or knowledge in a particular area or field, um, skills that are observable through testing. So for example, a savant could be a nine-year-old who is capable of solving mathematical problems that maybe postgrad mathematicians might struggle with, or someone who has an incredible memory and can memorize vast amounts of text um, or sound at ease that most of us would probably need weeks or months to learn. The thing about savant syndrome, which is what it's called, is that it's often present among those who are neurodivergent, or someone who thinks differently or has a different brain to what's considered typical. So oftentimes savant syndrome, or I'm gonna call it savantism, because you know, it sounds better than savant syndrome, Savantism is accompanied, oftentimes, by autism spectrum disorder. So, an excellent example would be uh, Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. Pretty sure he had Asperger's, um, but he's someone who is incredibly articulate and gifted in physics and science. Like, incredibly so, especially in the Young Sheldon series. They make him out to be the smartest human being who's ever lived. But Sheldon struggles with day-to-day -day life and communication with his friends and peers. Um, one person who became a sensation uh, a couple of decades ago, they even made a movie out of him starring Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. Um, we might do that. Well, I don't know if we'll do it, but one person, um, his name was Kim Peek. He was an autistic man who was very, very limited in what he could do. Uh, he needed constant care and supervision from his father and other carers with, you know, typically simple things like putting on his clothes, making food, going for walks, things like that, day-to-day -day things. A lot of experts at the time, especially when he was young and his parents needed guidance on how to parent a, new, a neurodivergent child, because this is decades ago now. A lot of experts said, uh, this guy isn't going to be able to do anything, you know, throw him into an institution. 
because he's going to be a vegetable. But what they weren't expecting was that Kim Peek was a savant who could do things that no other human could do. And, and statistically, it's okay for me to say that because not even the top not point not 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 one percent could do what Kim Peek could do. Um, he, like, you can Google him. They made documentaries about him, but he could read both pages of a book at the same time, memorize everything he read instantly, um, and then recite it word for word. He could calculate what day you were born, given the date and year. Uh, he could recite any text from any book he had read verbatim, um, and the list goes on and on. Somebody like Kim Peek should have found it very, very easy to be successful in today's world. Think of big tech, think of um, politics, law firms. They would pay boku bucks for someone who could do even a fraction of what Kim Peek could do. Like we're talking the highest salaries in the world ever recorded for someone like this. But sadly, Kim just didn't fit into their narrative of what being smart meant. He wasn't educated. Uh, not by any academic institution anyway. He didn't have a degree. And in today's world, most employers want bachelor's minimum. And by the time I start working in the field of psychology, probably, or in the circus, uh, it'll be master's minimum across the board. Some fields already want master's minimum. It's getting to the point now where it's going to be PhD minimum, you know? And the same could be said for Matt Damon's character in Good Will Hunting. He didn't have any uh, education whatsoever, but he could solve mathematical and scientific problems with tremendous ease. Problems that took Harvard professors, I think one problem took, uh, he solved it overnight, but it took his professors like two years to solve. Um, but while he wasn't necessarily autistic or anything like that, he found it very, very difficult to conform in a workplace setting or in a way that society demanded because of his impulsive nature and his need for independence. Now, our elders, <laughs> the grown-ups, <laughs> said a 20-year-old man, the grown-up people, they tell us, or at least they used to, to listen to wiser people so that you absorb their knowledge and their wisdom. Someone who is smarter than us is valuable to society because they give us the direction that we can't figure out by ourselves. George Carlin, an old school comedian that many people, including myself, consider to be one of the great modern philosophers of our time, had this amazing quote. Think about how dumb the average person is, then think about how half the population is even dumber than they are. So here's my point. Why do we demand that some geniuses and most savants conform to our worldview when they're the ones who have all the intelligence. Like, we have this idea of disability. If someone loses the ability to walk, we provide wheelchair assistance, wheelchair accessibility uh, to some buildings and disabled toilets. If someone has some form of paralysis, we make accommodations for them in the workplace and on public transport. And these types of huge physical disabilities is what most people think of when we think of the word disability. But what about this idea of hidden disability? One that might make one uh, extraordinary in one sense and highly limited in another. Like the idea of Kim Peek, 
someone who could count cards in blackjack with numerous decks of cards. And that, like, that's something that takes most memory experts years and years to do. Uh, he could calculate large quantities of numbers faster than some people would be able to plug into their calculators. Right, with, with the right kind of affordances and the right environment, he might have made a brilliant, uh, a brilliant maybe financial analyst or uh, a brilliant legal expert. I mean, he might not have been able to do the work by himself or in a workplace setting, but now with COVID, we're seeing that the workplace can be anywhere. You know, we're even seeing that in a lot of cases, remote learning has allowed people to achieve far greater amounts of work in better quality. So why couldn't someone who's neurodivergent, a savant, or someone with uh, behavioral issues, why can't they be snagged up by top companies? And uh, I think the answer lies in the distribution of intelligence and the individual differences that make up the causes of the variance here. So with regards distribution, <clears throat> a little bit of statistics here for you, 50% thereabouts of the population has what we call average intelligence, or between 90 and 110 IQ points. So the closer you get to the extreme scores towards the end of both sides of the curve is where the numbers of people who fall into that group decreases. So people with above average intelligence or below average intelligence make up 30%, so, right? So average intelligence is about half the population and then 30% combined make up above, above average and below average. And the extreme scores of over 130 or below 75 make up the smaller percentages. So the amount of people who are not average are very few and far between. The reason why IQ tests are so attractive is because they're quite vague, right? Um, we know that they measure working memory, logical reasoning, um, language proficiency, verbal comprehension, and a few other things. But what the IQ test can't do is provide an accurate score um, or a representation for each of these separate abilities. All it appears to be reliable on is providing a score for someone's general intelligence. Um, and that's a very vague term as it is. As I mentioned before, psychologists are still trying to figure it out. So companies would prefer to hire someone who has a good grasp of these abilities and education, um, a good grasp of these abilities. And like, <laughs> I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but education is a good way to increase your strengths in these things. Uh, things that the IQ test measures. So if we test babies on their language comprehension, they will always get a bad score relative to someone in their 20s, most of the time. <laughs> there are some pretty, um, shall we say, um, less advanced 20-year-olds, but over time, as the baby matures, their scores will dramatically increase through practice, um, through learning and hard work. The same goes for most logical problem-solving skills and techniques, which do need to be learned. Um, most IQ tests include the Fibonacci sequence. So they'd give you a series of numbers, which is 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, and 8, 
and ask for the next numbers in the sequence, which would be 13, because what you're doing is you're just adding the two numbers, right? You're adding the number that's just appeared with the number before. So zero and one gets you one, one and one gets you two and so on. Now, people who have never come across the sequence might have to look at it for a bit and come up with a possible pattern um, or a solution to the pattern uh, or an algorithm in their heads. Some people would figure it out faster than others. But if you know and recognize the sequence, then you'll know the answer instantly with little effort. And people who practice the, uh, the free IQ tests on Google, which are not accurate at all, they see the Fibonacci sequence, they don't even have to think. They just know the, the answer straight away because they've done it so many times. So the IQ test, <clears throat> in its effort to measure problem solving, it can be nerfed by someone who just practices these types of problems and remembers the steps that you need to quickly solve the problem. So starting from your first few years in school, you're given the tools to understand numerical information. Uh, your brain is growing. The information you learn determines to a large degree how proficient you're going to be in the future. So companies love people who have high qualifications because it shows that at a very general level and depending on your degree, You'll have a very high proficiency in organization, uh, verbal fluency, good communication, good working memory, probably a high level of self-discipline. The field you have the degree in is the icing on the cake, really. So you hear from big CEOs like um, Elon Musk and Bill Gates that, oh, well, they don't care if employers uh, or employees have a degree or not. And that's not true. What they mean is they don't exclude people without degrees from the hiring pool, but that they would choose someone with a degree and the knowledge of their field over someone who has no knowledge of their field without a degree, if that makes sense. Even when they add, oh, we value creativity and problem solving skills over a qualification. The thing is, right, here's the thing about problem solving skills and creativity. Problem solving skills are learned. And if you learn the correct procedure to solve a particular problem, let's say you're a software engineer who has a degree, no doubt you've come across a problem at work that needs a solution. And in college, there's a very high probability that you've come across that problem and you know exactly how to solve it. You didn't waste any time racking your brains trying to figure it out. You drew upon a memory, you solved the problem using pre-learned knowledge, and Bob's your uncle. There was a there was a scene in Goodwill Hunting that kind of explains what I'm trying to say here. Uh, Matt Damon was eventually recognized by a maths professor for being an unparalleled genius. So he took him to the NSA, the National Security Agency, which is sort of like the CIA, but way bigger. Um, the NSA realized the importance of Matt Damon because of his genius and his superior level of intelligence compared to the majority of human beings. And they saw that he'd be incredibly valuable as a code breaker. Now, governments and militaries, all that jazz, they use codes all the time, you know, to communicate information and pass secrets along. What they try not to do is use codes that have already been used um, and solved, like binary code or Morse code or the old Roman ciphers. 
Uh, they use new complex codes that haven't been used before and that require a lot of ingenuity and mathemat mathematical ability to crack. Therefore, a college maths graduate at the highest level with two PhDs might be entirely useless as a code breaker if they don't possess the high level of intelligence necessary to solve a puzzle that doesn't have an answer as of yet. And when we go deeper into it, um, there are very few instances in the workplace <clears throat> where something new happens that has never been seen before. There might be rare situations that might put you out of whack, but nothing that requires a whole new pair of eyes from a gifted savant. I mean, some people who are listening are probably already working as it is. Just ask yourself, has your boss ever said, oh no, something really bad has happened, we need a savant right now? I mean, certainly not from low to mid-level income employees that make up 99% of all employees worldwide. So question is, companies, do they, do they really need high-level uh, intelligence people, right? And I'm going to go off on another tangent. <laughs> the reason why highly gifted people often feel underappreciated and why they are often underappreciated in society um, is because they don't often make good employees simply because they're expected to do the exact same thing as the average and below average level intelligence employees are expected to do. Job interviews, they don't ask for IQ points, they ask for qualifications. And they're not splitting people up based on their intelligence level. Okay, we're going to have all the high-level intelligence people doing this job. We're going to have all the below-average intelligence people doing this job. Yeah, that doesn't work. It doesn't happen. That's discriminatory. You couldn't do that. Even if it was legal, what would be the context to that, <laughs> you know? Now, a lot of studies are showing that people with higher IQs tend to earn more money. And you might be thinking, oh yeah, cha-ching, nice one. But the difference isn't actually that much when you look at it. One study saw that if a person with an IQ of 100, let's say they earned 40,000 euros a year, or $40,000, depending on where you're from, an IQ of 100, right? Somebody with a whopping 130 IQ points, which is considered highly gifted, and there's very few of us around that have that, um, they could be expected to earn about 10,000 euros more than the average person. So 30 IQ points for like, okay, you know, what's that? 300, three, 300 euro, 3000 euro per IQ point. I can't do the maths. <laughs> I can't do the maths. I, I, I can't do it. Uh, I'm not a savant. But 30 IQ points is such a huge difference that it's not even a joke. The difference in 100 IQ points and 70 IQ points is that most of your friends have an IQ of 100 thereabouts, but 30 IQ points below them are people who have mental ages of about 10 years old. So we're, we're talking like huge language comprehension issues, huge maturity issues. They can't problem solve well. They can't learn how to problem solve well. They can't take care of themselves or others. They're greatly limited in terms of what kind of responsibilities they can take on in terms of work, right? And the difference is the same for a person 30 IQ points higher on the other side of the spectrum. Um, it's, the, it's the exact same scenario. Someone with uh, an IQ of 130, like their ability and their intellectual capacity 
is that much more pronounced than someone with an IQ of 100. Yet, they earn only 10,000 more a year. Which, depending on the career you're in, that could be a small pay bump. So do you see what I mean? Despite being able to solve problems and recall and process much larger amounts of information, highly, highly intelligent people are just not rewarded for this. Um, merit, even though it might be natural merit, that only goes so far in today's corporate world. And to be honest, sometimes being in the top percents sounds pretty darn difficult, if I'm being honest with you, because neurodivergence, or having a different thought process or a different brain to others, is highly associated with higher IQs, and we've talked all about the downsides of that. Um, a survey by a researcher named Ruth Karpinski, um, they surveyed Mensa members, so people who have done all the IQ tests and they found themselves in the top 2% of the population in terms of intelligence, they found that highly intelligent people are more likely to suffer from mood disorders like bipolar, depression. Uh, they're also more likely to suffer from anxiety and ADHD. And anyone who can relate to these disorders, even if you're not a, a Mensa member, you know how difficult it can be on a day-to-day -day basis to cope with these disorders, right? Being anxious, for example, can reduce your motivation. It can impact your concentration. It can negatively uh, impact your ability to avoid errors. So it can sometimes appear that highly intelligent people are not actually that intelligent because they struggle to maintain a good job performance because of underlying mental health difficulties that might go unnoticed. So when you think about it, in a messed up way, somehow being average is the best thing you could be. You know, you're more likely to be appreciated, you're more likely to be overpaid than underpaid, you're more likely to enjoy your job, and you're more likely to be promoted in that job because you can maintain consistent performance and avoid errors. Now, that doesn't mean for anyone listening who isn't average that the problem is with you. If anything, it's the system's fault, right? Society, so we live in a society. <laughs> society is run by people who are qualified sometimes, but mightn't be able to complement those qualifications with any sort of recognizable intelligence whatsoever. Just look at politicians and, you know, half the time I don't think they have brains. <laughs> Present company included. I'd destroy the world in a day if I was put in charge. Um, this episode in no way is to suggest I'm a silently struggling genius. Not, not at all. But it's to offer a little toast to those who are, right? People who have so much to offer just from their capabilities alone, but who have uh, no outlet for it. That natural skill, that natural gift you don't even have to be a genius. Everybody has their aptitudes. Everyone has a talent or a skill or something that they're brilliant at, you know? Um, what the, the, the blind guy, um, <laughs> the blind guy, you know the blind guy, the blind guy. Um, Jay, what was his name? I can't think of his name. Um, Jamie Foxx, is that his name? The actor, he played... Um, uh, a blind... Okay, I'm not going anywhere with this. Stevie Wonder. <laughs> the blind guy, Stevie Wonder. He's a fantastic musician. 
um, and he's completely blind. He's not a genius, but he's a musical genius. You know, genius comes in many different forms. Again, psychologists don't know what the heck intelligence is. They have a fair idea, but nothing concrete as of yet. Um, everyone has a talent. Everyone has a skill. And oftentimes, this brilliance that people have, they can't seem to find appreciation for it in school or in college or at the workplace. And one thing I've learned in my 20 years of inexperience, with greatness comes a pressure to contribute. <laughs> and when society doesn't allow you to contribute or to excel, or when society doesn't even reward you for what you have done, it can seem like it's your fault, that it's somehow your failing. But if you're going to take anything from all my mad ramblings, it's that no matter what you're capable of, no matter what the cultural zeitgeist portrays, you are appreciated by someone. You might necessarily be appreciated by me. I might not like you. But here's the thing. If you appreciate someone else, they'll pass that on to the next person. They might even appreciate you back. Winston Churchill has a lot of quotes. But one quote that he said is best said incorrectly. Think not what you can do for others. Think what you can do for yourself, for the benefit of yourself and for others. I've just realized <laughs> I've been quoting. Well, I haven't quoted it directly, but there's a quote from this movie, Goodwill Hunting. Robin Williams says it a lot. It's, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, Will. It's not your fault. Keep that in mind. No matter what you're going through, keep on, keep on it. <laughs> My problem-solving skills on full display here. I am 170,000 IQ here. I always struggle to come up with uh, the moral of the story to all of this because really what all of this is is just stream of consciousness. Uh, and then I get to the end and I'm like, oh, what does all this mean? But if you're going to take anything away... <laughs> Use some of that creativity. Use some of that problem solving to figure out how to live life on your terms, like Matt Damon did in this movie about someone who doesn't exist. And when you do that, give me a job. <laughs> All right, folks, that's it. Hopefully, I'll see you next week. Um, fingers crossed college won't be too hectic. Fingers crossed I won't be too popular. Mr. Podcast over here. But... Again, if you don't see me next week, just know that I'm doing smart people stuff. <laughs> or, or maybe stupid things. Again, I might have died in a landslide. But I'll see you soon. And you take care. <laughs>